Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. With me today is CEO and CIO Chris Walls. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. So, Chris, uh, another crazy week out there, and you know we're seeing a lot of comparisons to you know, so, you know other other recessions that we've experienced um, you know of, of late and of far. And so, you know, as, as we're looking through you know what we've experienced over the last eight weeks or so with with the COVID nineteen, uh, could you please you know contrast and compare you know, what we're seeing today? versus what we've seen in, in more traditional recessions of the past. Yeah, I think it's actually really instructive to look at it that way because obviously this is an incredibly unique situation. Yeah, I think one of the biggest differences, and and overall I'll describe it as the transparency of this recession compared to the opaqueness of prior recessions, and it shows up initially in the time leading into a recession, meaning the time from peak economic growth or, or peak earnings or peak uh, presumption of earnings increases into a recession. In the typical recession, that can take months and, and often it takes entire quarters. And over that time period, you're getting some data that confirms it's a recession. You're getting some data that says, no, we're not getting it going into recession. And ultimately, you know, nine months, 18 months later, there's confirmation that, yes, we've entered a recession and there's a negative feedback loop. In this case, it was weeks, and, and that's a big, stark difference. The other difference is when you look at a typical recession, maybe there's a 2 or 3% decline in real GDP, uh, which you know obviously has a very material impact on, on risk assets. And here, you know, we're looking at a 30% plus decline in real GDP, so just orders of magnitudes larger. And along with that, in a typical recession, it'll be a regional recession. It can be limited to a country. It can be limited to an industry. Uh, Here, it's a global recession, and it's across nearly all sectors. Uh, And then the other thing that's really different is once you enter a recession, in a typical recession, you may be in a contractionary environment for many months where sequentially it's getting worse and worse and worse. So it could be months and quarters. Here, it's really going to be contained on a sequential basis to a single quarter. Uh, And it may even be, uh, you know, an even shorter time period within that quarter before we see a positive inflection in economic activity. Uh, And so the market is easier to or quicker to discount the contraction and then quickly try to discount a recovery. Um, And it can only do that with a very large amount of stimulus that's been provided by the central bank. Yeah, I know that's, that's, that's a little true and, you know, the accelerated nature of this and and the full transparency around it. I mean, we we knew it was coming. Um, You knew who was going to be affected. That's the answer is everybody. and, And you knew it came on a global scale. So, um, you know, certainly unusual from to, to be watching through this. Uh, but what, you know, one, one of the other, you know, ideas that's been bouncing around is, you know, or I guess uh, terms that's been bouncing around is this idea of depression. And, and you know, we, we certainly have heard plenty of it. Uh, but I would be curious on your thoughts. You know, how do, how do you think the current situation is, is either different to or, or similar uh, to the Great Depression and what we experienced uh, as, as a country in the 1930s? Yeah. I, certainly from a rate of change standpoint and economic activity and, and unemployment, uh, this is going to look a lot like the Great Depression. Uh, however, it's going to differ in, in a very material way, and in fact, the most important way 
um, as it relates to risk assets. And that's really the impact on liquidity. You know, during the Great Depression, we didn't have FDIC insurance. We didn't have a shadow banking system. You relied on bank financing. And during that depression, you know, almost a third of the banks went under. Um, and when they went under, people actually lost their deposits and lost their cash. So there were clearly bank runs. There was, you know, hoarding of liquidity. There was lack of credit creation. And it took a number of years for the federal government to respond to this. You contrast that to today where we have FDIC insurance. We're, we're not having runs on the bank. Uh, people aren't concerned that they're going to lose their cash. Even if the banks don't have the wherewithal to significantly expand credit creation, the, the U.S. Treasury, with the support of the, of the Federal Reserve, is in fact uh, going to be able to provide direct lending. So I'm not saying it's going to be a robust lending environment, but it does in fact contrast fairly significantly with, with the Great Depression. And the other real key difference here is, you know, the federal government during the Great Depression was a tiny percentage of the U.S. economy. Um, you know, it was probably sub 5% for sure. Federal taxes were a tiny percentage of the economy. There was very little of federal debt outstanding. And what that really means is politicians weren't under threat, right? They didn't have to respond because they weren't worried about not being able to fund the federal government. You contrast that today where easily not only is the federal government the marginal spender, but they're the marginal lender today. They represent 20% of the economy. Uh, if they weren't growing their outstanding debt, you know, we would already have been in a recession. And if the U.S. Fed was not backstopping the debt, we would default in a matter of weeks. Um, and so it's just a completely different environment. The, the, not only do we have to have rapid fiscal response, we have to have rapid, broad, and ever-increasing monetary response. And then the biggest governor in the Great Depression, our currency was tied to gold at a fixed rate of 120th an ounce. It was subsequently devalued to 135th of an ounce of gold uh, in 1934. You know, today we operate on a, on a fiat currency system that, you know, actually trades on, you could say, on a floating rate at 1,700th of an ounce of gold. But the reality is there is no anchor to the amount of money we can create except to the extent inflation starts to rear its ugly head. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's you know, I think it's a great transition, right? But, you know, there's no limit to the amount of money we create. And, you know, at the Federal Reserve, its balance sheet seem to um, continue to endlessly expand. And it appears as though, you know, we're, we're falling down a similar path of what we've uh, witnessed with the Bank of Japan. Um, I guess your, your thoughts around you know, does the U.S. ultimately risk you know, some Japanification around these uh, around these programs? Yeah, no, I'm sympathetic to the argument that um, you know us uh, that the U.S. will in fact follow the path of the of Japan. Um, you know, I think the re reality is quite different. Uh, it doesn't mean we're not in a situation where we face the risk of deflation because we do. There's no question about that. 
we are transitioning from a disinflationary environment, which is a falling rate of inflation, to an outright deflationary environment. Um, and that that's a big change. And we're doing it at a time when we have a very large uh, debt bubble, not just at the corporate level, but at the sovereign level. So there again, it easily lends itself to the analogy that we're going to go down the path of Japan, we're going to grow our balance sheet, we can grow it as much as Japan has, and we're going to have, quote, the Japanification of, of U.S. markets. Um, there's two real structural differences as to why that can happen. Uh, number one, Japan is a creditor nation. Uh, they own more foreign assets than foreigners own of their assets. So there is a natural flow of income in the form of interest and dividends back into Japan. Uh, if you look at the U.S., we're a net debtor nation. Uh, in fact, our net international investment position is negative. And, you know, while we haven't always been in that position, you know, we were at a negative 11 or a negative 10% in 2008 as a percentage of GDP. Today, our net negative international investment position equals 50% of GDP. And what that means is that there's actually a net outflow of our interest and our dividend on a net basis. And it also means that uh, we are very susceptible to foreigners selling our assets in the need to raise U.S. dollars. Uh, there's just no way our central bank can stand back and allow that to happen. And in fact, we've seen evidence of that when in early March, when foreigners started selling treasuries and interest rates started backing up, the Fed panicked and bought in mass in order to suppress yields. Uh, our, our, you know, without our central bank support, again, we would default, I think, in a matter of weeks. And so we're just in a very different position from Japan. That's the good news. The bad news is we're in the exact same position as in Argentina. Uh, you know, maybe we can take solace and then we're not quite Zimbabwe, but, you know, we're really almost completely past the point of being able to address these imbalances. But ultimately, to the extent we, while we're trying to thread this needle between, uh, you know, a debt deflationary bust and a reflationary, you know, debt reset, and that's incredibly difficult to do. Ultimately, donations restructure their debt via nominal defaults in the forms of inflation, and then if it gets out of control, hyperinflation. Uh, and it is often the case that you'll have a minor or a debt deflationary experience early on that finally generates the political will to, in fact, reset the currency or cause real inflation. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned in there defaults, defaults in a matter of weeks. I guess that's a, that's a good, clean way to flip over to, you know, we're in the middle of earnings season, right? So uh, <laughs> tough earnings season out here. There could be defaults in a matter of weeks. Uh, beyond that, you know, what, what, what scenes have you noticed? Anything that's been developing that um, has brought any insight for you inside the portfolio? Yeah, I think the most important takeaway from earnings season is, um, and this is true of the recovery in general, uh, management teams are clearly going to put their best foot forward. They're not going to provide any guidance for 2020. 
and they would be idiots to do so. Uh, you know, the point is uh, kitchen sink 2020, take all the reserves you can, build lots of cushion on your balance sheet that you can release into earnings in 2021 and 2022 and beyond. Um, and the only other thing that we've seen is, yeah, there's probably a lot of people being overly optimistic on the recovery. They're, they're underestimating the amount of reserves that need to be built in the financial sector. Uh, but by and large, it's going to be an ugly earnings uh, uh, experience for 2020, but it really is trying to set the stage for 2021 and beyond. You know, 2020's earnings are only relevant to the extent they give us a guide on what the trajectory is going to be as we exit this year. Yeah, and I'm curious, you know, you mentioned set the, set the stage. You know, what, what do you think the focus of the market is going to be, you know, as, as we go through the remaining of the earnings season here and then the rest of the second quarter? Uh, so I guess wrap the first, year, first half of 2020. Um, line that up for us, please. Yeah, no, the entire focus is going to be real-time data. How fast are we getting back to work? You know, we, as I mentioned in the past, you know, we're tracking some hourly data that, that tracks hours work, number of hourly employees. And finally, for the first time, we've got what I would consider a material trend change in that where it's gotten less worse. Uh, and that's just an indication that either people are restless with the quarantine uh, or, you know, they really can't wait any longer. They got to go back to work in order to put food on the table. Uh, but that we're seeing those initial signs of the recovery. Then from there, it's going to be through the second quarter, hey, are we still on pace? What's the rate of change? Um, are we get, and we are going to get a, a second wave of unemployment for long, from longer cycle businesses. Uh, but the market's not going to be surprised by that. It, that's just the natural linkages in the economy. That's expected. So it is going to be what's the rate of change? What's the rate of improvement? Are there unintended consequences out there uh, that the market hasn't factored in yet? And those will begin to crop up probably in the third third quarter as well. But it's all about rate of change from here. What does the recovery look like? And is it consistent with what the market's discounting? Because at this stage, I mean, the market's rallied significantly. It's, it's discounting the recoveries here that we'll be able to address any issues that crop up in the fall. Uh, but when we exit 2021, you know, we're probably close to or on par uh, where we were in 2019. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned the rate of recovery. So, you know, this, this period reminds me quite a bit of, of what we saw back in 2008, right? We saw a record level flow into corporate bonds. We've experienced a record level of flow into corporate bonds here in, in April of, of 2020. Yeah. Uh, that resulted in a, in a nice equity bounce, right? We've, we've bounced pretty strong off the bottom. I mean, this is this is really similar to what we experienced post-Bear Stearns in 08. And then yep. a few short months later, that money evaporated, right? It was gone. And all the events <laughs> all the events that surrounded with Lehman. So, you know, is that, is, you think that's an appropriate historical context to think about? And, uh, and I, I do. The, second, the secondary question yep. is, you know, does that, does that affect you, you know, adding or taking risk, um, taking risk on or off in, inside your portfolio? Yeah, so you're right to point that out. Um, and I think it's it's a good historical reference point, not from a sequence of events, meaning, hey, we're at our Bear Stearns moment, and therefore, in a few months, we're going to have our Lehman AIG moment. That's not the point uh, that, that I'm, I'm trying to make. 
I think it's consistent to say we're at our Bear Stearns moment. We've had the initial shock. We have a, a, a flood of liquidity that's taking some risk off the table, meaning, as you mentioned, there is a wall of investment-grade debt coming to market over the next month. That will allow some companies to take the refi risk off the table. Um, but there's still extreme stress in the cash market. And as we've said, liquidity drives everything, and the liquidity, the cost and availability in the credit markets drive the equity markets, but the cost and availability of liquidity in the cash markets drive the rest of credit markets. And right now, the stress in the cash markets are eerily similar to where they were post-Bear Stearns. Uh, It would indicate that there's more volatility ahead of us, that the market's saying, hey, we should be in pretty good footing um, in in early fall, uh, but it's a slow recovery, so don't be surprised by more volatility. Now, what we're doing with that information as portfolio managers is it's the degree to what we want to dial up the risk. So we're not sitting here saying, oh, look, the market's up, the S&P's only down 8%, you know, small caps have rallied 18% this quarter, it's the all clear because Gilead may have a treatment. That's not the right analogy, right? It's not the recession related to COVID that's the risk-to-risk asset. It's the underlying conditions that were present pre-COVID. It's the debt bubble. It's the fact that our sovereign cannot finance its through normal channels. It's the fact that, you know, the, the dollar being a super reserve currency has destroyed all other reserve currency and is now destroying its own dollar system. You know, it's the fact that, that China really is in a, in a position to lead economic growth, and it is going to be a long, drawn-out recovery. So all these imbalances are what are presenting the risk. And unfortunately, the cure in the form of more dollars has unintended consequences. So, you know, we're very cognizant of the COVID risk. As I said, it's transparent. We know where the challenges are. We can price securities and their recovery in and around that, which really going to hold us back from significantly dialing up the risk is going to be seeing, hey, we're getting real health in the cash markets. That's translating into healing and broadly in the, in the credit markets, and there is no second shoe to drop. I do want to highlight that, you know, that doesn't mean we didn't dial up the cyclicality. We'd have been foolish not to do so at the March lows, and we did. So, you know, we're fully participating in this recovery right now, but before we go all out and really get pro-cyclical, we need to see some further healing in the cash markets. Great. Well, that's good. Well, let's call that. Uh, let's call it the podcast for this week. So, you know, excellent insight as always. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll catch you again uh, next week. We're looking forward to it. You, Thanks, Chris. You bet. Thank you, Dan. Yep, you got it. Bye. The views, information, and/or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, 
does not constitute professional investment advice or services, and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws.